Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to be in verse 17 through 20 yet again. It's going to be the third part of our sermon, this particular sermon called The Old Testament Fulfilled and Not Abolished. Now, as you're turning there, how many kids in here like to read a lot? All right, there's some. Good. Okay, do you, you like reading a good story, like maybe even a good mystery story? How many of you like a good mystery story? Okay, well, I know Olivia does. That's her favorite type of book. She's, I think she's read every single one of the Nancy Drew books, right? So when you have a good mystery book like Nancy Drew, um, you, you're reading through it. And in some of the early chapters, there may be details, very important details that maybe you don't even notice. Okay, you don't, you don't notice it. You just read past it. Or maybe there's something that happens. You don't quite understand it. And you're okay. And then when you get to somewhere in the middle or um, some, some point in the story where um, the mystery begins to be illuminated, you begin to see what it all means, some of those details come back into play. Oh, so that's why she did that. Or that's why that was there. And it all is explained as you get through the story. Now, the reason I bring that illustration up is because I've said over and over again, as we approach Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, and as we think about Jesus' words here where he says he is not abolishing the Old Testament, but he's come to fulfill it, I want us to think about the Bible as a whole story. I've said over and over again that we are to interpret the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. I believe that with all my heart. I believe that's a foundational hermeneutical principle as we interpret the scriptures. And I think Jesus put that in place as he's on the road to Emmaus and talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then he goes to the 12 and meets with them. And, and it says that he explained to them everything about himself in, from the, in the scriptures, in all the scriptures. And Jesus says in the passage we're reading today that all the Old Testament is about him. So I say that because um, when you're reading a Nancy Drew book, you read it the way it's meant to be read. You don't take those clues after you've read about Nancy and go, well, that doesn't mean that, or well, that doesn't mean that. You know, because the mystery has been revealed, what the clues were pointing to. So it's the same thing with us. As we see Christ, and we see the purpose of why he came and everything else, all of the Old Testament scriptures come alive, and we understand what it is that they were pointing to. So if you would, go ahead and stand as we get ready to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. This is our third week in this particular passage of Scripture. This sermon piggybacks heavily on the last two. Today's message is part of a continuing sermon series um, called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. Our desire here at Harbin's is to see Christ more fully and worship Him more rightly. And we're doing that by walking through the life of Christ chronologically using all four of the Gospels, verse by verse. So essentially by the time we're done with this sermon series, we will have preached through all four Gospels. Um, right now we find ourselves in the middle of one of Jesus' most famous discourses, a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking to his followers. There are crowds listening in. But this is King Jesus speaking to kingdom citizens about kingdom living. So keep that all in mind here as we read Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. So you are standing, and we stand because we stand in the honor of the reading of God's word because we do believe that this is the infallible, inerrant word of God. And this is what... The word of the Lord says in verse 17 to Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would allow your Holy Spirit to move in this place. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to open up our eyes and ears to the text this morning and the other supporting text this morning. Lord, I pray that you would grant me a mouth to speak and keep us from error. Lord, we want to look at all the scriptures through the lens of Jesus. Jesus, we know that everything was fulfilled in you. And it's not that you're not clear here, Jesus. It's that we're sinners and we have a hard time understanding things. So help us. We desperately need your help to understand your word. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, be seated, please. Let me tell you kind of where we're going today. This is a bit of a, of a difficult passage there's, in the sense that there's lots of, uh, there's several different interpretations as to how to, how to read this passage today. And, um, and I've kind of set up for you a minute ago how we do it here at Harvest. We want to be as biblical as we can, and we want to read the Old Testament the way Jesus reads the Old Testament. And so that's what we were aiming at here as we try to understand what Jesus means when he says he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets, which is, the, which is a shorthand for the Old, Old Testament. Now, where we're going today is that um, uh, we had two previous sermons already on this passage of Scripture. And I felt after last week's sermon that I need to come by and preach a little bit more on this passage Perhaps to clarify a few things and to continue to put forth, I believe, the argument that Jesus is making in this passage. Now, last week, um, I know there were some people that had some questions after last week's sermon. Um, I want to address some of the questions, and I want to get into a little more, specifically one very practical area is how this passage impacts our life. Now, let me remind you of last week's sermon, of the last two weeks' sermon. The first week, in part one of this sermon, we looked at verses 17 and 18, where we drew the following conclusions. We drew the conclusion that Jesus declares himself, or he declares the comprehensive inspiration of the whole Old Testament. So as you're looking at verse 18 there, he says, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law till it's all accomplished. Jesus has a very high view of Scripture. And he's declaring there that that all of the Scriptures, even the tiniest parts, are inspired by his Father, and none of it's going to pass away until heaven and earth pass away. And then Jesus declares his authoritative jurisdiction over the Old Testament when he says in verse 18, For truly I say to you, this was a unique statement of Jesus for him to say, Amen. That's what that means. Amen, I say to you. Most people would say, uh, Thus says the Lord, or the scriptures say this. But Jesus comes up on the scene and says, Amen, which is normally a statement people would only say at the end of something, to say, Truly, this is true. Jesus says it at the beginning, and then he says, I say to you. He's declaring his authority even over the Old Testament. Then Jesus declares himself to be the ultimate realization or the intention of the Old Testament. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He is the aim of the whole Old Testament. He is the ultimate realization of it. And how is he the aim of the Old Testament? Well, we talked about five different ways. Okay, he is the interpretation of its meaning. You know, Hebrews 1.1 says, Long ago, and at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the interpretation of the Old Testament. 
And then we also said he is the intention of its history. So not just the prophecies and the Psalms speak about Jesus. The whole Israelite history points to Jesus. So we read in John 5, 46, Jesus saying, For if you believed Moses, you believe me because he wrote of me. Then we also looked at how Jesus is the completion of its promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20, which was on that last song we sang there, says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And then we also looked at how Jesus is the actualization of its rituals. Meaning that all the rituals in the Old Testament, all the ceremonies and the civil and ceremonial rituals and laws, they all pointed to Jesus. Colossians 2.17 says that these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Jesus, belongs to Christ. And finally, we looked at how he is the perfection of his demands, meaning that Jesus kept the Old Testament perfectly, the Old Testament law. It says in Galatians 4, 4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So when we look to Jesus, we look at Jesus, we see the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We, it all makes sense, just like I was saying earlier, when you open up the, the Nancy Drew book or whatever. Okay, once you get to the mystery being solved, all the clues before it makes sense. Another illustration, I was kind of debating between which illustration I was going to do this morning, so I'm actually going to do both, is that maybe you have a puzzle, and you have lots of puzzle pieces, right? And you can start trying to put those puzzle pieces together on your own, just look at the pieces and start putting them together, and you may accomplish a certain degree of of clarity as what this picture is, but you know what you need in order to put that puzzle together? You need to see the whole picture. That picture is on the front of the box. Jesus is the whole picture. We look at Jesus and we say, aha, And now we see how the clues work together. We see how all the law and the prophets work together because it's all pointing to him. So that's where we were at two weeks ago. And then last week, um, we looked primarily at verse 19, which begins with a very important word. It says, therefore. So based upon, because of, or in light of what Jesus has just said about himself and the law, how are we to relate to the law? And we saw last week that Jesus commands his kingdom citizens to teach and to keep the law. In light of Jesus not abolishing the law, but instead fulfilling the law, we are to be law teachers and law keepers. Verse 19 says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we are to do or to keep the law, and then we are to teach the law. And how do we do that? Well, we looked at last week, the, our first point from last week was that kingdom citizens are to be teachers of the Old Testament law because it drives men to Christ. We teach the law because it drives men to Christ. The law reveals the character of God and it also reveals the condition of man. That's why we preach it. And then we also, the second point last week was that kingdom citizens are to be keepers of the Old Testament law because it flows out of our union to Christ. It flows out of our relationship with Christ. We should want to keep God's moral law because now we have hearts that want to keep God's moral law. And so there were three subpoints to that last week. I said that Jesus has kept and completed the law for all his people. Jesus has implanted and written the law on the hearts of all his people. Therefore, all of his people are empowered to carry out and live the law of Christ that is within them. So today what I'm going to do is expand a little bit more upon those last two points, hopefully clarifying some things. There was one person who left last week thinking I was teaching that the way we are justified before God is to keep the law. I was really upset when I heard that. That's not at all what I was preaching. I went back and listened to the sermon, and I did not preach that, but that was how it was heard. 
And so I want to clarify some things today. Uh, I'm going to focus more on verse 20. That's going to be kind of our launching pad, if you will, verse 20 here. Because I think verse 20 is so key to this passage. Because I think you could read verse 19 and think, well, Jesus just said he fulfilled, he kept all the law. And now he says, well, you should be doing it and you should be teaching it. And therefore, we could come to a false conclusion that, okay, well, I guess in order to be in the kingdom of heaven, I've got to keep the law and teach the law perfectly myself. But then we come to verse 20. And verse 20 keeps us from thinking that way. Verse 20 keeps us from thinking that law keeping is what gets us into heaven. Verse 20 says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if the disciples had any notion in their minds that they could somehow be good enough to be law keepers and earn their way into heaven, verse 20 just crushed it. How so? Well, we think about what righteousness is here. It means simply being right and doing right. It means living rightly, living purely, living lawfully. But Jesus shatters their understanding of what it means to live rightly before God by telling them that their righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. This would have shocked Jesus' hearers. The scribes and the Pharisees had law-keeping down to an art form. They had laws that they added to help them keep the laws. They knew how to keep the letter of the law. These guys were indeed dot and iota keepers. Matter of fact, these guys, had they been in the crowd, had the scribes and Pharisees been in the crowd, and maybe some of them were that day, they would have been listening to Jesus' words in verse 17, 18, and 19, and they'd have been shaking their head, and they'd have been saying, Amen! Until Jesus gets to verse 20. And he says, unless your law-keeping, your righteousness exceeds theirs, you ain't getting into heaven. Meaning it must outdo theirs, both qualitatively and quantitatively. Matter of fact, if it doesn't exceed theirs, you are bound for hell. So these guys would have been happy up to this point when Jesus says your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He is implying in no uncertain terms that they were not in the kingdom of heaven. So we need to have a type of law-keeping then that surpasses, that blows away the most right-living people of Jesus' day. We are supposed to have an understanding of and an obedience of the law of God that leaves their obedience in the dust. So Jesus has just upped the ante massively. And he's going to do it even more as chapter 5 progresses. So what kind of righteousness exceeds theirs? Well, it's this. True righteousness, righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes of the Pharisees, is righteousness that flows out of a right heart. What Jesus is doing here, and what he's about to do in the rest of this chapter 5, is to show us, first of all, that the righteousness that God requires is an inward righteousness from the heart, and not merely an outward and action-oriented righteousness. And secondly, Jesus is showing us that we need radical heart work to be done in us for that to happen. For all those who were listening to Jesus' words, they knew what Jeremiah had said about the heart. Everyone listening to Jesus knows Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so Jesus here, he isn't loosening the Old Testament law in this passage. Instead, he, instead, he's tightening it by focusing on the heart. He elevates it higher than it was before. For anyone can, to a certain degree, 
discipline himself or herself to externally keep rules. Some people are very good at rule keeping. But no one, no one in his own strength can in any degree make himself or herself obey God inwardly. You can make yourself do some things outwardly, but not a single person in this room or in that time, on that mountain can do anything to change that wicked heart that Jeremiah speaks of in Jeremiah 17. It's impossible. We may bite our tongue, but we are powerless in our flesh to quiet the words in our heart. We may hold back our fist, but we are powerless in our flesh to hold back the hate in our hearts. No man can exercise control over his own heart. And Jesus is saying that right living, which amounts to simply external rule keeping, is insufficient. Woefully insufficient and it will leave you hellbound. That command that Jesus gives us here. For thy righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Friends, this leaves sinners in a desperate state. Poor in spirit. And Jesus will spend the rest of chapter 5 inserting the scalpel of his word into our hearts. And finish it off. Finish off any shred of self-righteousness with verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's how Jesus finishes chapter 5. So he's taking the scalpel of his word of the law, by the way. Interpreting it rightly, and he, boom, puts it into the heart of the sinner. And now who can stand and say, look how righteous I am. For God peers into the heart, and there all men stand condemned as lawbreakers. Jeremiah 17, 10, the very next verse after the one I read earlier. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. There's a parallel passage to this in Luke 16, although this isn't the Sermon on the Mount. And there's many times where Jesus said similar things in other settings. And Jesus says this in Luke 16, 15. He said to them, you are those who justify yourselves. He's speaking to the Pharisees. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And then he goes on to say this, and this is where it's parallel. Verse 16 of Luke 16. The law and the prophets were until John... Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Jesus is saying there is a way of law keeping that gets you the applause of men. But you're not really keeping the law because it's not coming from the heart. So the law is good. It is holy and righteous and good, but we are not. As much as we might externally try to conform to the law, internally we are unable. For our hearts are wicked. The Pharisees failed to see this, and most people still fail to see this today. People do not want to be called sinners. I, I know I'm not perfect. That's the way everyone says, I know I'm not perfect. No, it's not that you know you're not perfect. You are wicked. Every single one of us in here are wicked to the core. We cannot even get close to attaining to what Jesus says to be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. We need a radical change of the heart. Men fail to see this. The truly righteous law-keeping man isn't just the man who doesn't physically murder someone. It's the man who no longer harbors any hate in his heart. The truly righteous law-keeping man isn't just the man who doesn't sleep around. It's the man who no longer lusts in his heart. 
The truly righteous, law-keeping man isn't the man who just speaks words of faithfulness to his wife. In his heart, he is faithful to her to the end. He has a heart of honesty toward fellow men, and he has a heart of love even toward his enemies. The truly righteous, law-keeping man is the man who has experienced radical, inward, heart transformation that continues to happen throughout his life so that he now loves and keeps God's law Because Jesus has come onto the scene now. He is that picture on the puzzle. He is that solved mystery in the middle of the book. Jesus has come to fulfill Ezekiel 36, 26, which says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you, listen to that, not to nudge you, to cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The only way we can be law keepers now is if the Spirit of God is in us doing a work that he gets all the credit for in us. That is what happens in a believer. That's what a Christian is. It's not about showing up at church. That's Pharisee. That's Pharisee righteousness. What are you here for this morning? Is it just a baby dedication? Is it just a gathering to sing some songs? Does it feel good for the rest of the week? Or are you here because you love God and his law and it's coming from a place that's not yourself. It's the spirit of God in you. And so you're here to worship with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what Jesus is pointing us to here. So what does all this have to do with the law? Well, in and of itself, the law cannot make our hearts right. It has no power to do that. So where does this leave Jesus' followers? It leaves them seeking a righteousness outside of themselves, which is why Jesus has said what he said in the first two verses of this passage of Scripture. So here's our first point for the day. We need the law of God fulfilled for us. We need the law of God fulfilled for us. Everyone listening to Jesus knew beyond a shadow of a doubt they were not perfect as their Heavenly Father is perfect. Therefore, they knew they must repent of their inward sin and rebellion and thereby cast themselves on the mercy of God and and to provide a way of righteousness for them, to provide a way for his righteous requirements of his perfect law to be met. And so Jesus tells us that he is that one in verses 17 and 18. He is the one who fulfills the law. All of Christ's followers are to put no confidence in their own flesh, but instead to put their confidence in Christ, just as the Apostle Paul teaches in Philippians chapter 3. Apostle Paul, speaking about not putting confidence in his own flesh, says, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now listen to his law-keeping resume. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And he says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss, For the sake of Christ, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. In him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That, my friends, is the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's the righteousness that Paul spoke of in Philippians 3. Romans 8, 3 says this. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin 
in the flesh. Jesus came and he condemned sin. Not his sin, for he knew no sin, but our sin. He died for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's justification. Jesus put forth to deal with our sin as he died for our sin. And those who have placed their faith in him are positionally right with God. We are positionally righteous with God. The law-keeping of the scribes and the Pharisees couldn't do that. Romans 3.21 says, But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the righteousness of God couldn't be accomplished through law-keeping, but it pointed us to the picture on the box. It pointed us to the solution to the mystery. It pointed us to Christ alone. And only in Christ alone do we find the righteousness that God requires. So, we need the law of God fulfilled for us. And it was fulfilled for us by Christ. How? By faith in Christ. We were fettered by the law so that we might turn from self-righteousness and believe in the one who fulfilled it for us. We were fettered. We were bound by the law because of our sin. So that we might turn from our self-righteousness and believe in the one who fulfilled the law for us. By faith we are made righteous before God. But not only are we justified before God, positionally declared right with God. We are also practically moved toward right living that pleases God. Meaning that the righteousness Jesus speaks of plays out in our everyday life through good deeds, through practical living. That's what we call sanctification. So there's justification and there's sanctification. Let's, let's read Romans 8, 3 again, but this time let's continue on to verse 4. And you'll see these two things side by side. Justification declared right before God and then sanctification, how we live. Verse 3 of Romans 8. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In the likeness, he, he didn't come in sinful flesh, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That's justification. The sin's been condemned. We're now right before God. Then verse 4. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk, that's how, that means live, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the second point today is simply this. We need the law of God fulfilled in us. Fulfilled for us and in us. We are now to strive to keep the law because it's what we want to do. Let me, let me finish what Paul was saying in Philippians 3. We'll pick it up in verse 12 now. He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have, have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's how people who have been made right with God live. Godwardly. People that are living worldly and claim that they belong to God are a living contradiction. And very well may not be saved at all. Because those who have had a heart that's been made new by God and is now positionally right before God have a heart that now practically wants to live for God. That's how the scripture lays it out. We now keep the law because we want to and we are enabled to. Let me continue with Romans 8. So I know I've jumped to Philippians 3, now back to Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 5. 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however... So if you're a Christian in here, he's speaking to you if you're a Christian. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If you are a Christian, the Spirit of God dwells in you and you live for him. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's what the scriptures teach. Now, there are different levels of our walk with the Lord, and I understand that. Different levels of maturity. But there should be an upward projection of godliness in the life of someone who claims to be a believer. If you see a flat line, well, that means the heart is probably still flatlined. So we need the law of God fulfilled in us. It's the work the Spirit continues to do in us. How? By our union with Christ. We are now free from the law... So that we might turn from self-sufficiency and abide in the one who fulfills it in us. So how do we, how do we become law keepers now? We abide in Christ. And he accomplishes it in us. We continue to strive and to work. And we continue to abide in him. John 15, 4. Abide in me as I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, this is all about our union with Christ. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And listen to this. You're wondering what this has to do with law keeping? Listen to verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now there's so much more we could talk about here. We could go on forever talking about these two aspects of law keeping. That has been kept for us and it's been kept in us. But today... Let us be very clear. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, Jesus is not teaching works righteousness. He's not teaching that we got to keep a bunch of rules. That's what the Pharisees taught. Jesus is teaching that we need obedience from the heart, which means we need a new heart and we can only find it in him. Therefore, Jesus is teaching grace. For heart change requires a work of God. It's the work that Jesus came to fulfill. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with them, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Friend, there's so much more, like I said, that we can say about all this. And in time, as we continue to preach through God's word, verse by verse, we'll be able to do that. But today I want to pause here and just think about how this plays out practically. Okay? I want to think about Now, if Jesus has kept the law for us, and if he now works in us to enable us to keep the law, well, then what law? What are are we supposed to be keeping? What what does a Christian look like that keeps the law? Well, we talked about this some last week. I'm going to talk about it more here this morning. 
Remember last week I mentioned there are three elements or three aspects to the law of God in the Old Testament. There's the moral law of God, there's the ceremonial laws, and then there's the civil laws. The moral law of God is the eternal law of God given at creation to man, eternal in its nature and a true reflection of God's character and God's nature. It was given at creation. It's eternal. It's always existed. It was wrong to murder before the Ten Commandments were given when it said thou shalt not murder. So that's the moral law of God. Then there in the Old Testament we read of ceremonial and civil laws. Although they rest upon the foundation of God's moral law, they were not eternal in nature but temporal as they applied to the ethnic people of Israel. The ceremonial laws were given to direct them in how they were to worship God. And the civil laws were given to them to direct them in how they were to be governed by God. Now, you may be thinking, well, where do you see that division? You know, where, where are you getting that from? Well, let me just give you, I, I promised last week I'd give a little bit of background. First of all, this division was used by the Reformers. Calvin, Luther, and others all used this division of the law. But it goes back way before that. Augustine, he used these distinctions when he talked about the precepts of the law. And it actually goes back even before that. We can trace it all the way back to the second century. The church was already teaching these different aspects of the law. But that's not important to me. We don't base our doctrines on church history. You can get into, I think, some wrong teaching by basing your doctrine solely on church history. We want to go to the scriptures. And so we read passages all over the Old Testament like this one. In 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than that of the fat of rams. And there seems to be this distinction in the Old Testament between um, there's a way to keep the law that's not really keeping the law. To just go through the motions of doing sacrifices and different things like that. And Jesus is more concerned with the heart. Even in the Old Testament. He's more, I mean, God is more concerned with the heart in the Old, Old Testament. And so we see this distinction in, in many other passages like that. seem to draw this distinction between the moral law of God that people are to, to keep and the ceremonial law of God that it doesn't seem to be as important to him. Although it is given by him to them. Then we read in 1 Corinthians 7, 19, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. And you might think, well, isn't circumcision a commandment of God? Well, it is. But there was a bigger concern here. The moral law of God that, that undergirded all the ceremonial and civil laws was the more important law to God. These laws pointed to and were built upon the eternal moral laws of God. But these ceremonial and civil laws, they pointed to Jesus. They were completed in Jesus because he is the obedient son. He is the true Israel, the second person in the Godhead. He is in perfect communion with his father. Therefore, he needed no ceremonial laws or civil laws to guide that relationship. So when he comes onto the scene, they are swallowed up in him. They are eliminated for all who are united to him. Furthermore, these laws were designed to set Israel apart from the Gentiles, as I mentioned last week. But now in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. So I believe the ceremonial and civil laws, now that Christ is on the scene, have been set aside. But the moral law of God continues. And that's the problem. Some people want to set aside the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, with all the civil and ceremonial laws. And I don't think you can do that. Because the Ten Commandments are a summary of the moral law of God that was written from before time began. The moral law of God is never set aside. It's an eternal law. It's written on our consciences at creation, written on stone tablets of the Old Covenant, and written on hearts in the New Covenant. 
So the Ten Commandments are the foundation of the civil and ceremonial laws, but they are above these laws, and they are not set aside. They remain standing. And they are not set aside in the New Testament. When Jesus deals with the rich young ruler, what does he take him to? He doesn't say, ah, don't worry about those laws anymore. He takes him to the Ten Commandments. In 1 Timothy 1.8, there is this passage of Scripture. Let me just read it to you. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers and sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. If you go back over that list, we don't have time to do it right now, you will see that all the Ten Commandments are mentioned there in that passage of Scripture. It has not been set aside. The Ten Commandments have been clearly restated in the New Covenant, thus showing that they, are still, that they still stand. They have not been set aside. This moral law of God functions as a restraining force of evil in the world. It functions as a mirror to reveal sin to sinful men, to point them to Christ, and it functions as a guide for believers so we might know how we can delight the Lord. But there's one of the Ten Commandments, and I'll take a few minutes to talk about this, that people get hung up on. Here we go. All right. Because this is the biggest question last week. Okay, if I got any questions last week, it was this one. What about the Sabbath? What about the Sabbath? <laughs> All right. I know there's going to be some of you who do not agree with me when I'm done with this. Because I know there's difference of opinions in this church, and that's all right. I believe the Sabbath is unique among the Ten Commandment laws given. It's part of the eternal law of God because it was instituted at creation when God rested on the seventh day. But it's also part of the civil and ceremonial laws of God given to Israel because it's listed with the feasts and the festivals. It was given as a civil law to benefit the theocratic nation of Israel. So what happens to the Sabbath? There's three views. Number one, the Sabbath is still binding today just like it was in the Old Testament, which leads to Seventh-day denominations, Seventh-day Adventists, Seventh-day other groups that, that worship on the Sabbath because they believe it's just as binding as it was then. Then there's a second group who believe the Sabbath has been replaced by a Christian Sabbath, which is the eighth day, called the eighth day Sabbath, which we know there's not eight, eight days. What are they talking about? Talking about Sunday, the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is the new Sabbath for the people of God. And then there's a third view that the Sabbath day has been set aside completely and Christians are no longer bound to any specific day, even though they are to continue to follow the pattern of worshiping the Lord on the Lord's Day. So, I think the best way to look at this view is to understand that the Sabbath's ceremonial and civil aspects have been set aside in alignment with the other civil and ceremonial laws. So the Sabbath itself is eternal. And for those who are under the law of liberty, our Sabbath is now Christ. Christ is our Sabbath rest. Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath, and we find our rest in Him. Okay, for it is in Him that we cease to strive for our salvation. It is in Him that we find rest. And there's an interesting correlation in all the scriptures between rest and faith. So what is the Sabbath pointing to? It's pointing us to faith in Christ. We rest in Christ for he is the true Sabbath for all believers. So I would say I actually fall closer to the third view. Okay? I would say that the third, in my mind, reading the scriptures, the third view. Christians are no longer bound to a specific temporal day. For that was a ceremonial aspect of the Sabbath law that has been set aside. But we continue to worship on the Lord's day because that is the pattern given to us in scripture. And we still find that God's good design for man is to rest and so we rest from our work and we worship him, but we're free. We're not bound to a specific day on which to do that. And Christ is our final rest. Now, here's the deal. The reformers were sort of split on this matter. 
And some viewed the Lord's Day as the new Sabbath, some did not. The view of the Lord's Day as the eighth-day Sabbath really came into prominence later with the Puritans. The earliest church fathers, the earliest church writings you can find, the fathers did observe the Lord's Day, but they never called the Lord's Day a new Sabbath. The Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 never tells the Gentile churches to observe the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was huge to them. But most importantly, the Scriptures. Again, I don't build my doctrine on church history. The Scriptures. What do the Scriptures say? And the funny thing is, and I did a ton of reading this week on the Sabbath, those who defend the eighth-day Sabbath, the second view, will give you a lot of Old Testament Scripture and will deny the very hermeneutic they say they believe in, which is to interpret the Old Testament in the light of the New. Because there are two very clear passages that most of these authors do not deal with, and they are these two passages. Romans 14, 5. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And that's how I'm leaving it here. (laughs) You be convinced in your own mind from the Scriptures what the Sabbath is about. But there is freedom here. Paul, by giving this whole argument, is saying, essentially, there is not a specific day. Okay, he's not siding with those who are hung up on a specific day. He's actually siding with the weak, stronger brothers who aren't bound by that. Saying in your Christian freedom, you can esteem one day as higher than another. But don't impose it upon your brother. Then in Colossians 2.13, the most important passage. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. What are these laws that are being dealt with here? Ceremonial laws. No one let pass judgment on you in regards to questions of food and drink or with regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. For these are shadows of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Christ, therefore, is the fulfillment of the Sabbath, and we keep it okay, by resting in him and by worshiping him from the heart. And we look forward to a day when these sinful bodies will be in our full state of rest with him forever. Hebrews 4.9 says there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. However, we view, I view the Sabbath here from the standpoint of a new heart that finds its rest in Christ. And we continue to worship on the Lord's Day, but we worship out of delight and not out of duty. Those who have new hearts love the law of God and love to worship God and love to gather with the saints and worship on the day that our Lord rose from the grave. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And, of course, all of the Ten Commandments, all the Decalogue, all the moral law of God can be summarized into that one word, love. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Galatians 6, 2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Romans 13, 8 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So aren't my words, that's Paul's words. So in summary, I want you to remember three numbers here. We're drawing this into a conclusion. Three numbers. The number 613. There are 613 Old Testament laws. 613 Old Testament laws can fall under the heading in the summary of 10 laws, which are the 10 commandments. So the second number is 10. And the third number I want you to remember is 2. There's two commandments, to love God and love fellow man, which is a further condensing of what the law means. 
So how is the law fulfilled in us? It is accomplished in us as God's spirit through the renewal of our hearts and his indwelling presence moves us, moves us with love to God and love toward our neighbor. And we cannot love God the way we should and we cannot love our neighbors as we should without the indwelling presence of God's spirit. So in one sense, friends, we are no longer under the law, not to gain righteousness at least. Romans 10, 4 says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Yet if we are true Christians, we will with new hearts and through the indwelling presence of the Spirit, we will love the law of God. For the law of the Spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We've been set free from the curse of the law in order to live out the law of love, in order to live out the law of the Spirit, in order to live out the law of Christ, which is a law of liberty. Liberty to now live the way we were created to live as God imagers, shining his character in all we do, all through faith in our risen Savior. Romans 7, 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has raised you from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now I want to close with one final practical thought. Okay? Um, for the Christian in here. Are you to keep the law? Yes, in Christ. So the law is holy and righteous and good. And only when we become holy and righteous and good through Christ, as he works in our heart, does the law become sweet to us? And we can say with the psalmist, Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. Christian, how do you abide in Christ? He says in John 15, let my words abide in you. If my words abide in you. Do you want to love God more? Then eat this book. Eat this book. Do you want to love your neighbor more? Eat this book. And if you're an unbeliever here, friend, you can't delight in the law of God. You can't. You hate it. If you're sitting here today and say, I just don't like to speak of law keeping. You know who else doesn't like law keeping? Go down to the county jail. You find a lot of men in there that don't like law keeping. If you don't like the law, it's not because the law is bad. It's because you are imprisoned in sin. And you hate it. You hate the law. And you need a heart change. The only one who can change your heart is the one who shed his blood to provide a way for lawbreakers to be made right with God. Only he can change you. You must come to Jesus. You must cast yourself upon his mercy. He will in no way cast you out. He will save you and make you the person you were created to be. An image bearer of God who loves God and loves his law. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for your good word. We delight in the law in our inner being. Those in here who are believers, your law is sweet to our taste. We can read Psalm 119 with joy because we really believe what it says. That your law is all these amazing things to us. God, help us to wrap our minds around what you did in Christ Jesus. Help us to wrap our minds around how there are aspects of the law that were simply pointers, like the clues in Nancy Drew. Pointers to Christ. And now that the mystery of Christ has come upon the scene, the clues are no longer needed. But that there's a moral law, a law that Christ did not in any way come to set aside.
a law he came to write upon our hearts and make us new creatures. New creatures who then go out in our love for God and preach a ministry of reconciliation to the world because now we love people too. So God, I pray that you would stir us up to understand these things. I pray that there be any in here who is not a believer. They hate the law of God. They hate hearing these things. They'd rather be playing golf right now. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in their heart because they in no way can come to you on their own. They cannot. They can no better come to you on their own than a dead man can dig his way out of one of the graves by the nearby cemetery and come into this church building. They need to be born again. So God, I pray that you would do a work in their heart as well. So Lord, as we sing this final song, we respond to you. We respond to your grace. We respond to your work that you're doing in our hearts. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.